Some people have accused me of being a matchmaker, and I don't know how in the world they could come up with such an idea. Me, a matchmaker? I don't think so, but uh, I will admit to this. I do love a really good, real-life love story. Tragically, too many of today's real-life love stories turn out to be sad affairs. Why is this the case? Why are there so many unhappy marriages, so many breakups in relationships? Why is there so much heartache in today's relationships? I was asked to speak on the subject of Christian courtship today, and there's so much that could be said about the subject. Certainly, the time that I have here is not nearly enough time to cover everything that could be said about the subject, but I've chosen to concentrate on what I would call early courtship. I've never heard the term used before, but by the time I finish, I think you'll understand where this is going. The reason I've chosen this aspect of the subject is because I see too many people, too many people that I really deeply care for and love, making some very bad decisions, and those bad decisions have lifelong consequences. Let's first define what we mean by courtship. Looking on the uh, online dictionary on my computer, it says this. As a verb, court means, one, dating with a view to marriage. Two, attempt to win the support or favor of. Three, go to great lengths to win favorable attention. And five, of a male bird or other animal, try to attract a mate. Now, some of you may have noticed that I left one of the definitions out in terms of court being a verb. The one that is left out is number four, which means risk incurring misfortune because of the way one behaves. Without any exaggeration, the overwhelming majority of people in our Western world today and sadly, far too many in God's church court misfortune by the way that they court. If courting involves going to great lengths to win favorable attention with a view toward marriage, in other words, attracting a husband or a wife, then when does courtship begin? There's a very inspirational speaker that a number of our young people have heard at our summer camp and our L4T program by the name of Pam Stencil. She's a very powerful speaker, and she speaks on the subject of sex outside of marriage having consequences, having a price tag that has to be paid. And she makes an interesting observation. She says that people say that opposites attract, but when it comes to character, this does not hold true. In other words, people of character are attracted to other people of character. Well, we use the expression opposites attract very often in our common uh, talk. We also use another equally strong expression, birds of a feather flock together. And when Pam Stencil speaks of character, what she's referring to here, attracting, she's referring to the last uh, statement here, birds of a feather flock together. 
people who have strong moral character, who want to live a certain way of life that is positive and uplifting, according to God's law, are going to be attracted to others with the same viewpoint. People who play church, people who uh, profess one thing but live something else on the side are going to attract the same kind of people. So the question is, do you want to marry someone possessing high moral character? And if you do, then you must be a person possessing high moral character because that is what you're going to attract. It is for this reason that courtship in its fullest context begins with what we call reputation. We normally think of courtship as a period of time of active, steady dating that proceeds and leads up to marriage. But in today's world, the courtship itself is often bypassed entirely. Boy meets girl, they go out, they end up in bed together, and perhaps they may end up marrying one another. Now, it's not because they understand the meaning of marriage, but marriage is the thing to do for many people. They have no concept of what marriage is all about. Little or no thought goes into what kind of a person this is, what kind of a mother or father this person will be, what kind of provider he will be, what kind of a housekeeper will she be, will he or she be faithful to me in the long term. But instead, men and women have reduced mate selection to an animalistic process devoid of thoughtful inquiry. Then when the relationship goes down the drain, they point the blame at the other individual and they wonder why it turned out this way. Why did I get into this mess? But they never change. I shouldn't say never. So often they don't change. They just continue looking for another mate with the same process, the same way they go about it. Wendy Shallot, in a very insightful book entitled A Return to Modesty, uh, a very good book that I would even recommend for uh, many of you to pick up. It's a few years old now. But this young Jewish woman was turned off by what she saw at the university that she attended. And she began to write about it, first of all, in Reader's Digest. And when she found that there were thousands, tens of thousands of people who thought just like she did about a certain subject, about the co-ed dorms and specifically co-ed bathrooms at the university she was attending. Uh, she, she wrote it in Reader's Digest and she found that so many were interested that she eventually wrote a full book on the subject. It's called A Return to Modesty. And she describes a little bit about the subject of, uh, of reputation and the college or university scene today. On page 34, she writes the following. The best predictor of someone's future behavior is their past behavior, warns YM Magazine in 1998. This is what used to be known as a reputation. All the questions a woman might wonder when it comes to the man she's about to become involved with, is he moral? Is he good? And does he know what it means to be a man? Have been reduced to this. For we are not supposed to care if he's moral. Who knows what's moral? Or if he's good, who knows what's good? And above all, we are not allowed to ask if he knows what it means to be a man. 
That, of course, would be extremely uncool because that would be sexist. One cannot ask about male honor because male honor is supposed to be oppressive to women. Every woman of my generation knows this. We learned it with our ABCs. Very interesting comment that she makes there. If courtship begins with reputation, then when does reputation begin? Let's turn to the Bible for an answer on that. The book of Proverbs, the 20th chapter of Proverbs, verse 11. Proverbs 20 and verse 11. It says, Even a child is known by his deeds whether what he does is pure and right. So even a child has a reputation. He is known by his behavior, whether his deeds are good or are right. And so reputation, from this perspective, begins very early in life, even as a child. In Acts, the 16th chapter, we see a young man who had a reputation that the Apostle Paul took note of. Acts 16, beginning in verse 1. It says, Then he, speaking of Paul, came to Derbe and Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. He was well spoken of by the people. He had a reputation, a reputation that people looked upon as being a positive reputation. You see, a reputation can be good or it can be bad. But we all have a reputation one way or the other. It says here that in verse 3 that Paul wanted to have him go with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region. And they all, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So Paul wanted to take this young man with him on his travels. He wanted to be a mentor to Timothy because he saw in this young man a certain approach toward life, a wonderful reputation, a following after his mother and his grandmother, as we read elsewhere, that indicated that this was a, a serious-minded, moral individual that all of the brethren saw in a very positive light. And so Paul took him with him. Now let's imagine for a moment, let's consider this. If Timothy decided to clean up his reputation when Paul arrived in town, would Paul have taken him with him? What if Timothy had said, well, you know, uh, Paul, I, I, uh, I, I know I haven't lived a very good life. I, I've been doing a lot of things that are contrary to the Word of God. But I would really like to be a minister. And I will clean up my act from this day forward. Well, of course, we know that's not how God chooses ministers in the first place. But how far do you think that would have gotten with the Apostle Paul? And yet often this is what we find with young people or older people who are single, who have sown their wild oats, who have used drugs, alcohol in a wrong way, and suddenly they meet the right person or they see her across the room or him across the room, and they begin to make approaches toward that individual to introduce themselves, hoping that that person is going to be attracted to he or she, and yet, or him or her. Uh, ho hoping that that would be the case. But is that the way it works? Is a person who is looking for someone of high moral uh, character 
going to suddenly take your word for it that now you're going to clean up your act and you're going to be the person of his or her dreams. I don't think so. The Apostle Paul certainly would not have taken Timothy with him. And if we really think about it, uh, I think we can project forward. We can look in this situation with courtship that a person is not going to accept your words of change. If you sow wild oats, use drugs, drink in excess, these actions are going to precede you. Just as we use the expression, your reputation precedes you. Truly it does. On the other hand, if you are honest, live a consistently godly life, treat others with respect, conduct yourself with moral integrity, are a hard worker, this reputation will precede you. The choice is yours. So what's it going to be? Here's what it comes down to. If you want to someday marry someone who is faithful, someone who is stable, someone who is of real quality and lasting beauty, you have to be, with that, be that kind of person. You yourself have to be that kind of person. Or at least start being that kind of person right now, today. Because it's going to take time to build that reputation. Not tomorrow, but today. Because you never know when you're going to run into that person, Mr. Wright or Miss Wright. I was counseling with somebody a while back about marriage. And I was explaining to her there's Mr. Wright and then there's Mr. Very Wright. And that she wanted to find the right person, the Mr. Very Wright. She came back from the feast recently and she had a little tiny plaque that she had bought in a store that immediately reminded her of that. And she said, it, it read, she gave it to me to look at, and I, I read it, and it said, I married Mr. Wright. What I didn't know when I got married was that he, his first name was Always. You have to think about it. If you want to marry Mr. Wright, you have to be Miss Wright. If you want to marry Miss Wright or Miss Very Wright, you have to be Mr. Very Wright. Birds of a feather do flock together. And you have to begin that reputation as soon as possible. Is this not how God judges us? If you think about it, doesn't God judge us based on our actions currently today? Notice Matthew 25. Matthew 25. Now we know that God forgives sin. Not only do we know that, we're very thankful for it, every single one of us. But in Matthew 25 and verse 21... It says, His Lord said to him, Well done, done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So God was looking here in this parable, Christ was explaining, that the man who had uh, one talent and gained five talents, in other words, his actions, what he had done there, was the result or was the, the cause of the reward that Christ was going to give him. He didn't come up to Christ and say, well, I, I haven't done anything up to this date uh, with the talent you gave me. No, I have done something with this talent. And so he rewards him. He also who had received, verse 22, two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents beside these. And his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. 
I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I, I knew that you were a hard man, reaping where you did have not sown and gathering where you have not uh, scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent on the ground. Look, there you have it. What is yours? But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. Now, I know that this is a totally different subject, in, in a sense, than what we are discussing. And yet, there's a principle here of how God judges. That God expects us to be doing something when he returns. He expects that we will have had some history of the right actions. It's not the matter of when you see him coming, do you suddenly have a deathbed repentance or repent there on the spot and say, well, Lord, I'm going to really live the right way from this day forward. We know that that's not going to work. Notice also in Luke, the 16th chapter, Luke 16, and here in verse 10. Luke 16, verse 10. He says, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. God is going to judge us on what we do with what we have, where we are at the particular time. Again, we understand His forgiveness for sin, but He does expect us to be doing what is right. Why would we think that a human being who doesn't have the, the big picture, who cannot read our mind who does not have the, the entire uh, gamut of love that God has to forgive sin, the, the incredible uh, power of forgiveness and, and forgetting uh, the past that God has, why would we expect that some human being who is not so perfect would then look at us if we've been living the wrong way of life and suddenly think that because we profess we're going to change that all of a sudden we'll be different? I know it happens from time to time. But the people who are really trying to do what is right are going to be looking for others who have a, same, a similar reputation. And Luke, the 12th chapter, we have another example of this. Luke 12, verse 42. The Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. In the same way, if we think about it, when that Mr. Wright or Miss Wright walks into the congregation where you are, or you go to the feast and suddenly you are introduced to somebody that you haven't known before, uh, and you see that person and you're interested, why would we think that that person would suddenly be interested in us if our reputation, which has not been positive, has preceded us? On the other hand, if we've had a good reputation, that reputation is also going to precede us because, you see, other people know who we are, and they're going to make comments, and that person is going to hear about you, and they're going to think, you know, that's someone I'd like to be interested in or someone I am interested in learning more about. You see, courting begins long before we get to the place where we're, we're actually dating. It begins with uh, what kind of a person we are. I know that many people just date for looks, 
And when they date for looks, that's what they're going to get. But the person who really wants to obey God is looking beyond looks. He, is, he or she is looking at what kind of a person is this individual? What kind of a mother will she be? What kind of a father will he be to my children? How much love, how much concern, how giving is this person? Or is this person selfish? Is he a hard worker? Or is she a drunkard? Does she go to a lot of fast parties and get drunk and so forth? This is the type of thing that people are going to be looking at if they're looking for a quality person. They want to know that they're marrying somebody that not only looks good to them, but somebody that is good in character, as much as human beings can be. God is going to reward us tomorrow for what we do today. And the same principle applies to dating and marriage. If you are single, you are being judged right now by singles of the opposite sex. You have a reputation for good or bad, maybe somewhat neutral. Maybe you don't have a lot of reputation, but one way or the other, you're going to have a reputation. It may not be real strong, but it's going to be there one way or the other. Those of character are evaluating your character. Those who think only of immediate gratification and having some quick fun right now are going to end up with people of like mind, people who are shallow in their thinking just as they are. And they're going to end up with people that maybe they're not satisfied with or a person they're not satisfied in the long run. So what it comes down to is this, that if you want a real quality person someday, start now being the kind of person with the kind of reputation that you hope to find in the other person. Because in a very real sense, you are courting right now. You are attracting others to yourself for good or for bad, even though the person you may end up with you haven't even met yet. Now, as I said, this does not mean that there's not forgiveness. And some, frankly, some of our young people in the church and some of our older people in the church need to do some reputation repair because some have been doing things that they ought not be doing. And as one who works with our young people, I'm well aware of this fact, that especially among our young, but not just our young, some of our older singles have been doing a lot of things that they ought not be doing. And it doesn't mean that everything is lost, but it does mean this, that if you want to have a good reputation, you're going to have to clean it up. And it's going to have to be from the heart. It can't be something that is superficial. And it's going to take some time. People are very forgiving, especially in our modern world, because so many make so many mistakes that it's hard to find someone of impeccable uh, character today. But uh, nevertheless, uh, it doesn't mean that we can wait around to build a reputation. It means that if you've been drinking a lot, going to a lot of parties, doing a lot of things that will tear down your reputation, uh, it means you need to straighten up and straighten up right now. Because you never know when that right person is going to walk into your life. And if it happens soon, the sooner you clean up your reputation, the better it's going to be. It's going to take time. And frankly, it's going to take a few years if you've had a bad reputation to clean it up to have a good reputation. It can be done. And people will forgive you just as God forgives. But it's going to take time. And it's not going to happen in a day or two or a week or a month or even six months. It's going to take 
in most cases, a year or two or three or four or five, depending on what the reputation was. I'd like to give you the big three destroyers of reputation, which lead to what I would call a sad love story. And I say sad because this is an acronym for sex, alcohol, and drugs. These are the big three that will destroy your reputation and turn people off toward you, uh, people of character off toward you as fast as anything will. Sex outside of marriage is taken for granted today. But a loving God counsels us against this vile behavior. And it is vile. It is a sin. This error, this sin, is so pervasive that it is now the norm, that which society in general takes for granted. People just assume that people are living together before they're married or sleeping together. Our language is drenched in it. As an example, we've substituted words such as spouse, husband, or wife, or etc., with the word partner. Even a former U.S. presidential candidate, after losing his election, was reduced to advertising Viagra. And when he advertised it, he spoke of one's partner rather than one's spouse, husband, or wife. Yet the damage to individuals and families from this sin is enormous. Many people today are simply skipping the entire dating and courtship process and jumping into the privileges of marriage without marital commitment. Wendy Shallot, again in her book, this time on page 28, the book, uh, A Return to Modesty, makes this interesting uh, comment here. She points out that hookup is my generation's word for having sex, or sometimes for what used to be called making out. The hookup connotes the most casual of con uh, connections. Indeed, hooking up is so casual and the partner so interchangeable that sometimes it's hard to discern a pattern in all the hooking and unhooking. It seems almost arbitrary. Hence, in a 1998 issue of YM Magazine, uh, it takes up the question, why do guys dump a girl, then try to hook up with her again? For the full answer, here is NBC's report from the University of Michigan. Quote, dating takes a lot of time, as one male senior puts it. It costs a lot of money, and also I think out of the little time that you have, you want to kind of maximize what you get out of it. Notice he says, what you get out of it. Is there any outgoing concern here? Sums up the NBC reporter, quote, Dating is a practice which on this campus and others is history. Why date when you can just hook up, then unhook, and perhaps later hook back? What a sad state of affairs that we have gotten ourselves into. The very language we use is a language of betrayal, of no commitment, of no real genuine love. It's just a selfish uh, approach toward gratifying the self. Notice that our loving Father's counsel 
is that we're to avoid this type of behavior. I know that we know it, but sometimes it's good to review what God says about it because to a younger generation, it's so common that people just don't think that God has anything to say about it, that, you know, it's all old-fashioned. Whatever the Bible says is, is not relevant. But if we believe the Bible at all, we have to believe these statements. You can't pick and choose and say, well, I want this, but I don't want something else. I want to go to a place of safety and avoid the tribulation. But this other scripture over here, I want out of my life. In 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, in verse 9, it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, what is the unrighteous behavior that God is talking about here that is going to keep someone out of the kingdom of God? He says, do not be deceived. In other words, this is behavior that can deceive us. We can rationalize around it. We can think that, well, it's okay, I can do this today, and I'll repent later. Or, God will forgive me later on. I'll sow my wild oats, I'll do whatever I want to now, and then I'll clean up my reputation at the last minute when I find the right person. We'll get married, and then we'll live happily ever after, and I'll be faithful to her, and she'll be faithful to me. Notice some of the things he says here. Neither fornicators, that's sex before marriage, outside of marriage, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the three that I'm talking about here that will give you a sad love story uh, are sex, alcohol, and drugs. And two of those are mentioned right here in this passage, fornication and also uh, drunkards. Let's notice a little further in this passage in verse 18. It says, flee sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. And yet, what we do is we try to get as close as we can to sexual immorality, but stop just before we go, quote, too far. And everybody has his definition of what too far is. But I think the church has been very clear about the subject, uh, that particular subject. But notice, it says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. He sins against his own body. Now, God loves us. There was a, a program many years ago that I, I suppose if you are under the age of uh, 45 or 50, you would never know about it unless you heard an older person talking about it, but... It's been much made fun of over the years because uh, our sitcoms have changed drastically. And we say that, well, these old sitcoms were so unreal. They were an unreal family. But then we take uh, Married with Children or uh, uh, The Roseanne Show. I know that's, that's old now. But some of these other modern ones, and we say, well, that's more realistic. Well, God help us if those are more realistic. And, and sadly, I'm afraid that too many of them are too realistic of today's world. But there was a program called Father Knows Best. And you know, our Heavenly Father knows what's best for us. He loves us. He cares for us. He deeply wants us to do what's right. And, and brethren, and especially those of you who are young, because you are the ones that I, I work with the most, 
but I don't, I don't want to just refer this to our young people. You know, I care. And I know that the rest of us in the ministry deeply care for you. And sometimes we shed tears when we hear some of the things you do. And sometimes we get very, very excited and filled with happiness and joy when we see you doing the right things and things working out in your lives. But Father, our Father, our Heavenly Father, knows us and loves us more than any human being does. And we have to ask the question, does he really know what's best? Did he know what he was inspiring here when he told the Apostle Paul that every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body? Let's take a quiz. These questions that I'm going to ask you here, uh, the statistics I have here, uh, come from Pam Stencil, again, who is a, uh, an inspirational speaker. She speaks to about a half million, mostly young people, every single year. She's booked up a year and a, year and a half in advance. She gives three lectures for $5,000 when she speaks. At least that's the latest that I've, I've heard uh, when I checked up on it. But she brings out a lot of interesting information in a very humorous and yet a very sobering way, a lot of anecdotal evidence, but she also brings out the facts. So let's take a quiz. What percentage of people over the age of 12 have an STD known as herpes? What percentage would you estimate of those, all the people over 12, we're speaking in our Western world, the United States, Canada primarily? The answer is 20%, one in five. And this is an incurable disease. I remember a time when I'd never heard of herpes. And yet it came into our, our uh, knowledge sometime around the 70s. I don't know exactly. In the 50s, she points out there were five STDs. Just five. Today there are over 30. And 30% 30 of them are incurable. If you have them, you have them for life. The most common STD today, what would you say the most common STD is? It's called the human papillomavirus, HPV. The street name is genital warts. I've done some study beyond what uh, Pam Stencil says on this. There are over 30 varieties of this that are sexually transmitted. Number 16 and number 18 have no symptoms at least no symptoms, until they produce abnormal cells on the cervix of a woman. This, again, is an incurable disease, often symptomless unless it causes these abnormal cells, which turn into cervical cancer. There are more women today in the United States and Canada dying from cervical cancer caused by HPV virus than are dying from HIV or AIDS in the United States and Canada. And yet we hear about HIV, we hear about AIDS, we hear about pap smears that women go through because that's what they're looking for. It won't tell them that they have the virus, but it will tell them if that virus is causing damage. And yet we hear very little about the, the number of deaths caused by this. How have the STDs increased in the 30-year period from 1967 to 1996, a 30-year period. Well, in 1967, the average high school student, among the average high school students, one in 32 had an STD. 
That was 1967. By 1983, it was 1 in 18. By 1996, 10 years ago, it was 1 in 4. And I'm not sure what it is today, but I doubt that it has decreased. 1 in 4. On average, how many STDs does the average pregnant teen have? People don't often think about it. They think of pregnancy as the worst thing that can happen to a person. And yet the average pregnant teen today is carrying 2.3 STDs on average. So obviously some are carrying far more than others. When God says here in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 6, flee sexual immorality, every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. God knew what he was talking about. And sadly, many people are proving the very thing that God said. Rejecting what he said is the right behavior and proving what he said that he knows what he's talking about, that sex outside of marriage has a consequence, a price to pay. So how do we flee fornication? Well, again, there's so much that could be said on this subject that I, I'm merely going to refer to the uh, November-December 2006 issue of Tomorrow's World. And in this issue, I have an article for Tomorrow's Youth. But again, this applies to older people as well. And the... Uh, Subject title is, is saying, no, enough. And in that, I point out that there are seven unshakable unbreakables that you can set for yourself. Rules that you will not break, because if you don't break those rules, you're not going to find yourself in a bad situation. Number one, never go into a house or apartment or other isolated location where temptation with someone of the opposite sex uh, has a chance to flourish. I don't mean... Don't go into your grandmother's house and visit your grandmother alone. But we're talking about where there's a, a potential of, of danger there, where we're talking about two single individuals who like each other or uh, even married individuals, whatever it might be. Uh, that's one way to flee fornication. You stay as far away from it as you can. You don't play with foreplay. Mr. Armstrong pointed out to Master College students many years ago that the act that we call sex is not just the final part of the act. It is all that leads up to that and that there's a certain thing called foreplay, which is a part of fornication or the sexual act in a right way in marriage. Never lie to parents if you're a young person about where you are, what you are doing, and who you're with. Because when you start lying about those things, it's because you're trying to cover something up. Because you're wanting to be someplace that your parents know is not going to be good for you. Leave a party where drugs or alcohol are being served. Especially if you're a young person and underage, uh, alcohol is something that you need to stay away from. Do not expose yourself to sexually explicit materials in movies, books, television programs, or on the internet. Because it will affect your mind. And it will put thoughts in your mind that don't need to be there. So I would encourage you to read that article. Uh, not just because I wrote it, but because I think that it has some, some good information there about fleeing sexual immorality. 
The second way to destroy a reputation is through the misuse of alcohol. In Proverbs, the 31st chapter, we have instruction by a mother to a son, Proverbs 31, a son who is to be king. And that's what we're to be someday. And I hope that we can all really catch on to that vision, meditate on it, think about it, what it means to be a ruler, not to put people down, but to bring peace to this world, to help and to serve, to truly be servant leaders, servant kings, as God the Father and Jesus Christ are, as Jesus Christ literally gave his life for us, and we'll be of the same attitude and mind as members of the God family. But here it says, verse 2, well, let me start with verse 1. It says, the words of King Lemuel, the utterance which his mother taught him. So this is what King Lemuel's mother taught him. And there's a lot of speculation as to who Lemuel was, perhaps Solomon, but it's, it's really not relevant uh, who it was. The point is, these are words that were taught by a mother to a son. And she says, what my son and what son of my womb and what son of my vows? You see, here's, here's a son that she loves. And if we as, if I say we, because I, I was in the same category at one time, but if young people could only understand the, the intense and incredible love that their parents have for them, your parents would literally die for you. They've given themselves to you. Uh, they've sacrificed so much for you. And here's a woman that's saying, the son of my womb, the one that I carried inside of my body, please listen to me. I have something to tell you that's very important. Do not give your strength to women. Don't give your, your life over to fast women. That's really what she's saying there. Women in a wrong context. She's not saying never get married. But she's saying, don't give your strengths to women, to fast women, immoral women, nor your ways to that which destroys kings. You see, this is the kind of thing that destroys kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine. So after she talks about immoral sexual behavior, the very next thing that she mentions here is the use of alcohol. Do not give yourself over to be drinking wine, nor it is not for kings to be drinking wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink. Now, this does not undo what the other scriptures point out, that in moderation, it's good. It's even beneficial to the body, as Paul told Timothy, that a little wine is good for the stomach's sake. In, in Timothy's case, it may not be for you, but for Timothy, it was. If you've got an ulcer, maybe that's not the thing you want to do. But he's talking here about drinking wine uh, in an intoxicating way. It says, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law. In other words, you begin to give yourself over to it, and you forget about God's principles, and you just do things that, that are improper and pervert the justice uh, of all the afflicted. Now, this is a, a very strong principle here. And I'm bringing this out especially right now because we have, sadly, too many of our young people who are getting involved in drinking 
recreational drinking in a way that, that's going to be detrimental to them. You know, Mr. Davy Crockett, those of us who spend some time with him from time to time, appreciate all the, the uh, wonderful sayings that he comes up with. Uh, for example, he, he used one the other day. He said, uh, you, you, can, uh, uh, you can shear a, a, a sheep many times, but you can only skin it once. There was a point that he was making. I won't try to give that point at this point. But here was something else that he, he said one time that it, I, I don't want to forget. I can't always remember the few words that he uses to say it, but I understood the principle. He said, when drinking revolves around mealtime, it's seldom a problem. When you have a glass of wine or even a beer with a meal, it's seldom a problem. Where we get into problems is with recreational drinking. Recreational drinking is the problem. And sadly, as I said, this is what some of our young people are getting into, even at the Feast of Tabernacles. And I think that some need to think about it in the context of the reputation that they're building. What kind of reputation are they setting? And I assure you, there are those out there who are looking at that. I know some young people that take notice of those who go to the, the good time parties at the feast. And I've known of cases where uh, individuals have decided that that's not the person that I want to get involved in. Even though they were physically attracted to the individual, they've decided that because of this person always being around the, the drinking scene and so forth, that they don't want to be a part of it. They've decided to move on to someone else. I'd like to read a little bit here from Wendy Shallot's book once again on page 236 because she draws a, a connection between drinking and sexual immorality. She says, The most common complaint I hear from women my age is that there is no longer any dating scene. You see, they just go beyond it. They just skip the dating, skip the courtship, just jump in bed. Young people go out in packs. They drink. They hook up. And the next day, life returns to normal, at least normal for them. I suppose you could find much depressing in this behavior, for starters, that there is not even a pretense of anticipation of a love that will last forever in the cold expression to hook up. But there is also a lot about this behavior that should give us hope, and that is the fact that all of them have to drink to do it. In other words, there's a connection between drinking and hooking up. They aren't drinking wine, as with a meal, to begin delightful conversation. They are drinking beer and hard liquor to get drunk. Precisely to cut off delightful conversation and get right to the point, as it were. That is the advertised purpose of most college parties, as it were. And this kind of drinking is really quite a stark admission that, in fact, we realize we are not just like the lower animals, that our romantic longings and hopes should inform our most intimate actions, should inform our most intimate actions, and that if the prevailing wisdom decrees hookups don't matter, that sex is, quote, no big deal, then we must numb ourselves in order to go through with it. 
Thus we pay tribute to the importance of modesty by the very lengths to which we must go to stifle it. Yes, there is a connection between recreational drinking and other behaviors that uh, are even more damaging in some cases. The third letter in SAD, after sex and alcohol, is drugs. In the book of Revelation, there's a passage, Revelation 21 and verse 8, that I don't think we've focused in on too much. But here in Revelation 21 and verse 7, we, we focused in on it in parts of it, but the part that I want to look at today, I don't think we focused in too much on. It says, but the cowardly, this is Revelation 21, verse 8, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, we see the sexually immoral there, of course. But there's another word, and that word is sorcerers. We normally think of sorcery as someone with kind of a pointed hat and uh, maybe a wand. Uh, we might think of Harry Potter or something along that line. Um, it's interesting when you look at this word in its original context. Not, not only its context, but the original Greek word. The original Greek word is pharmakeus, from pharmakon. And it means a drug, i.e. spell-giving potion, pharmacist, poisoner, by extension, a magician. And the King James Version has sorcerer. Many cults used various drugs to get them in a state of ecstasy or whatever it might be. Years ago, some people misapplied this to modern medicine. Uh, that was used for people who are sick. We never thought of it in the context that we could today. Uh, in the last 30, 40 years, we've come to the place where recreational drugs are used on a very commonly. Uh, they're all around. They're, they're not off in the corner anymore. Uh, any high school student probably knows right where they can go, right where he can go to find it. Some of us who are older probably wouldn't know where to find it, but I'm sure we could find it pretty quickly if we just put our minds to it. The point being that God says that this, these pharmacaeus are not going to be in the kingdom of God. And I think that whether that is referring to our modern uh, drug scene or not, although it, it would seem that there is some definite connection there, uh, whether it is or not, one, one thing that we do know is that drugs are not productive. I'm talking about the illegal type of drugs that are used for recreation. They pro provide nothing positive in the long run. What they will do is destroy you and certainly destroy your reputation. True Christian courtship is an important step to building marriages, families, and wonderful love stories. And we all love a good love story. We love to see when young people do it the right way. Or older people. You know, we get just big a kick out of 
an older couple in their 70s or 80s when they're all giddy and want to get married. Uh, we had a, a couple like that not long ago. What lady I'd known for a number of years, and she showed up to feast, and the first thing she wanted to tell us is that she was engaged, and now they're married. And, you know, we, we rejoice with that couple. We're happy for them. And when we see two young people just starting out in life, we rejoice with them. We love a good love story. But we want a love story that's going to last. And proper dating and courtship are, are steps along the, lot, the, the path to achieving that particular goal. When we skip over dating and courtship and just jump right to the bed and the privileges of marriage, and then as an afterthought of, well, we're living with this person, maybe we ought to get married. It'd be nice because we could have this beautiful wedding and you know, the young lady would like to walk down the aisle in her white gown and, and have everybody looking at her and people giving them presents and all that type of thing. Uh, when, when we skip all the things that should have gone before, that's not the kind of marriage that, it, that, that marriage doesn't last very long. Too often, you have the, the wonderful marriage ceremony, and then within a year, two years, three years, they're gone. They're separated. It's turned into a sad story. And one of the major reasons for that is because they were not living the kind of life that they should. They were not choosing a person of high reputation. They were not a person of good reputation. They were just living according to this world. And you know, this world is passing away in the lust thereof. And if we did a scientific study, if we looked at the modern dating practices of man today and did a scientific study and said, based on what's being done, and here are the results, is this a good thing to do? We would have to conclude that there's something wrong with our methods, something wrong with what we're doing. For those of you in, in God's church, we ought to be doing things different. Because we want different results. We want positive results. We want a beautiful love story that we all rejoice in. We want to see you happy. I, I quoted a letter that I had received from a young lady in this article that I wrote. And I'd like to read it uh, for you. Because it really touched me. And I have to say that this is one of these, these lovely young ladies that... We've known at the summer camp for a number of years. We've watched her grow up, and, and uh, she's a beautiful young lady. And she said, so many people think of sex as just a line not to cross, instead of realizing that it's an attitude. When purity is set as just a line not to cross, people will go as far as they can to that edge. And you know, it's the same thing with drinking. And drugs, although you, it's kind of hard to be moderate about drugs. It's either one or the other. But it's the same thing with alcohol. It's an attitude that we take into how we use it. She said, I love a quote by Josh Harris, who authored a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And it's a very good book. There's a sequel to it, a Boy Meets Girl, and I think both should be read together. I love a quote by Josh Harris that goes, the longer your no-big-deal list is before marriage, the shorter your very special list will be after marriage. And then she says, I want my very special list to be long. And I plan on saving my first kiss for the day when my husband and I both say, I do. Now, I, you know, the church is not saying that that is 
the, uh, the exact standard that, that we must live by, but you, you have to admire this young lady. Uh, we have made it very clear that it's not a, a sin for two people to have a short goodnight kiss. Uh, people who are engaged, people who are very serious. Uh, I think we've tried to make it clear that kissing is not for 16-year-olds. But nevertheless, we have to admire this young lady and the resolve that she has and hope that she can stick with her resolve if that's what it is. But I can tell you this, that she has a reputation. And it's a good reputation. And the kind of people that she's going to attract, the kind of fellows that are going to be scrambling over one another in a few years to be able to date and court and perhaps marry her is going to be of the same caliber. Uh, there are going to be those who are not of that caliber that may see something they like there, but she's not going to be interested because she's looking for somebody who shares her values. Oftentimes when I speak on these subjects, or this type of a subject, I say that my purpose is not to convince everybody. My purpose really is to convince 50%. Because all we need to turn things around, not in the world because we're not going to turn around the world, but to turn things the way that it should be in the church of God is to get 50% of the people to understand the message and to apply it. Now, of course, that 50% is all female. The point being that if our ladies understand these things and if our ladies demand respect from the fellows, the fellows will then have to give them the respect. In Wendy Shallot's book, she writes the following toward the end of it. She said, I'm writing because I see so much unhappiness around me. So many women settling for less because I don't want to settle for less and because I don't think you should have to either. She's saying, I don't want to settle for less. I don't think you should have to either. But because I see so much unhappiness, that's why I'm writing this book. It says, consider yourself forewarned. If you refuse to be cured of your sensitivity, in other words, you give in to the world's approach toward things or your womanhood, if you start defending your right to your illusions, be prepared for people to tell you that you are silly and childish. What I'm saying here today is not easy, but it is the best way. It is the way that produces the best results. Be prepared for some to make fun of you directly and for others to be more sophisticated about it and try to reduce your hopes to various psychological maladies. Oh, you must be uncomfortable with your body or some such thing as that. But what would happen, she asks, what would happen, I wonder, if women, instead of seeing their romantic hopes as hang-ups to get rid of, instead of being ashamed of themselves for being women, would start to be proud of their hesitation, their hopes, and their dignity? What would happen if they stopped listening to those who say womanhood is a drag and began to see themselves as, in, as individuals with the power to turn society around? Society might well, I'm sorry, society might very well have to turn around. You know, society is going to turn around. There is a new world coming, a better world coming, when proper dating and courtship will be practiced. 
just as it was to a great degree on the Ambassador College campuses when I went to Ambassador College many years ago, back in the late 60s, middle, middle to late 60s. We practiced the type of things that I'm trying to promote here today. And we found that it worked. It paid off. Before I came into God's church, I didn't understand these things. And thankfully, God kept me from a lot of problems that I could have gotten myself into. But nevertheless, I didn't live perfectly according to these standards. And yet, when I came into Ambassador College, I learned a better way. And I came to love it. And that's why some of us, from time to time, speak about this subject. Because we know there is a better way. A better way to dating, a better way to courtship, a better way to marriage. And the results are going to be there. True Christian courtship starts with attracting the very best, the most compatible person that you can. And when I say compatible, I mean morally, emotionally, intellectually, and various other ways. I'm not talking about in bed, because that'll work. That'll happen. That'll be fine. But we're talking about attracting the best person that you can, the highest quality person that you can. And as we've seen today, this process begins with reputation long before you begin the dating process. This is what we may call the early courtship period, the time that takes place before you meet this individual who you view as being so special. You want to make sure that your reputation is such that when you meet that person, that person is going to be interested in you. I bid you happy, successful, rewarding courtship, and I pray and I hope that each of you has a beautiful, warm, and loving, long-lasting love story.